Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts be acceptable in your sight through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. One of our members asked me several days ago, very good question, he asked, why did Jesus teach in parables? Why did he employ a figurative, symbolic language, kind of hidden language, to describe the truth of his kingdom? Well, you have to consider the context. In Matthew 13, where Jesus teaches extensively in parables, the context is one of rejection of his message. And in the previous chapters, chapters um, 11 and 12 of Matthew, Christ's message is rejected, and he is beginning to experience opposition from the authorities, even. And so what Jesus does is he, he begins to teach sort of in code. That's what the parables are. The parables are a way of sort of flying under the radar of censorship. The authorities cannot arrest Jesus for what he's saying when he teaches in parables because they don't understand what he's saying. But the disciples do understand, even if he has to explain it to them in private they will understand. In other words, the parables do two things. They conceal and they reveal. They conceal the truth about the kingdom from those who are already rejecting the gospel. And they reveal deep truths about the kingdom of God to those who are receiving that gospel message. So Jesus' parables are really illustrations of how God reigns over the world. They are illustrations taken from daily life, but they are extreme illustrations. They illustrate not the way we are, but the way God is, and the way God is is pretty strange. His ways are not ours. For example, in our gospel reading for this morning, Jesus says, a sower went out to sow. Now, farmers do many things. They plow, they fertilize, they sow, they cultivate, they reap, and so on and so forth. But Jesus does not call the man in our parable a farmer. He doesn't call him a laborer. Jesus calls him a sower, as if that's all he does. The sower seems, it seems that his entire job is one of sowing, according to the parable. And the sower is a Christ figure. And although Christ does many things as he rules over the church and the world, the main thing Jesus does is sow seed. The main thing he does is scatter the seed of his word among the nations. And notice how he sows, according to the parable. He flings the seed everywhere. He is not careful about it. Some seed fell along the path, where the birds could easily spot it and gobble it up. Other seed, we're told, fell on rocky ground, where the soil was too thin to really grow anything. A crop would spring up, but then the sun rose, it became hot, it warmed up the soil too much, and the plants were scorched because they had no depth of root. 
Still other seed, we're told, fell among thorns, but as they grew, they were choked by the thorns. So, Roman numeral one in your sermon outline, the Lord's illogical generosity. A farmer would be more careful about where he sows his seed, but the sower is no ordinary farmer. He's the gracious Lord who is not stingy at all with his word. He flings it everywhere, hoping for a response. He doesn't give up on the path. He doesn't give up on the rocky ground or the weed patch because those areas represent real people for whom Christ bled and died. Our Savior does not give up on them, nor on us. Roman numeral two. Why are so many rejecting the word of God? Well, letter A, Jesus comes in a word that is defenseless. It's a defenseless word. Or one could say it's a rejectable word. Christ comes in a word that men can contradict, in a word that men can shout down. According to our parable, Christ comes in a word that can be snatched away by the devil. According to verses 20 and 21, Christ comes to us through words that can be eclipsed by tribulation and persecution. According to verse 22, Christ comes in a word that can be choked and made unfruitful by the cares of this world and the desire for wealth. However, in each case where the word fails, the problem's not the word. Just as the problem is not the seed that the sower scatters, the problem is with the soil on which the seed falls. The problem is with the ears to which the word is being proclaimed. Point number one, the Word became flesh, John 1.14. In our Old Testament reading for this morning, the Word is spoken of as a person that goes forth and it does the will of God and it returns to God, having accomplished God's purposes. The Word became flesh in the person of Jesus. God became man. And when God becomes flesh, He can be ignored, He can be shouted down, he can be rejected. He is subject to abuse and crucifixion. And the same is true for you and me. Number two, we've been born again of imperishable seed. We've been born again of imperishable seed. That is the living and enduring word of God. We have a new life in Christ that's beyond the reach of death. But we still die because we are still flesh. We are still subject to abuse. We are subject to rejection and to mockery for our faith. We can still be ignored. We can still be canceled by the world. But even when we are, we haven't failed. When we bless those who curse us, when we forgive those who cancel us, we reflect Christ to the world. When we patiently bear with those who reject us, they will see Christ in us, and he is the one whom they need to see. He's the one on whom they need to believe. Letter B. The kingdom comes in weakness. It comes in weakness, and that offends us. That offends our pride. 
It offends us that God would carry a cross, much less die on one. And it offends us because if God himself carries a cross, he may expect us to carry one as well. And he does. But even when God comes to us in weakness, even when he comes in crucifixion, his saving will is not defeated. Rather, it is in the weakness of crucifixion that his saving will for humanity is accomplished. And it is in our weakness that God will eventually manifest his strength. Letter C. The parable of the sower is not primarily exhortation. I mean, it is sort of exhortation, but that's not really the main purpose of it. It's primarily explanation. It is explanation. Matthew chapters 11 and 12 discuss the increasing rejection of and opposition to the gospel message. In the parable of the sower, Jesus explains why his ministry has not been successful by our standards. So you have to think of the gospel message as seed. The problem is not with the seed. The problem, again, is with the soil on which the seed falls. The problem is with Christ's audience. They've closed their ears to any thought of a God who comes to them in meekness and in weakness. But ironically, that's the only way God can save them and us. Roman numeral three. The Lord's ways are not ours. Letter A, the Lord's weakness is more powerful than man's strength. Verse 8 of our gospel reading, other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. The, The point is, the fruitfulness of the good soil far exceeds the fruitlessness of the bad. The fruitfulness of the good soil is enough to make one forget the failure of the first three soils. And our Lord even compared himself to seed when he said in John 12, unless a kernel of grain falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Christ's death on the cross will prove far more fruitful than his life. Christ lays down his life for us, and we daily take up his life. We live his life in the world today. Christ accomplished more by dying than by living, and the same is true for you and for me. To die daily to myself and to my desires, and to live each day for Christ and for others, is more fruitful and more fulfilling for me than to continue living as a slave to my passions. Letter B. Through the defenseless word, through the defenseless word, God unites people to himself. Through the weakness of his word, God forms an unbreakable bond with his people. 
Jesus said in John 10, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. The Apostle Paul wrote, faith comes by hearing the message, the message of Christ. My friends, every relationship in, in life is based on faith or trust. Same thing. Without trust, there is no relationship. Trust results from promises made and kept. The same is true with God. In his word, God binds himself to us in the person and work of Jesus. Through his word, God binds himself to us in baptism. Through his word, God binds himself to us in the Lord's Supper. Through his word, he forgives all of our sins for Christ's sake. And through his word, he bestows upon us a hope and a future. Now it may surprise us that God chose to save humanity not through some grand display of power, but through the weakness of words. Human nature, after all, thinks little of words. To us, talk is cheap because we often say things that we really don't mean. We make promises that we do not keep. To us, therefore, words matter little because we cheapen them. But to God, words mean everything because he keeps his word and when he speaks, he speaks only that which is truth. Therefore, we should treasure his word and consider it the greatest gift he has to give you or me. Letter C. Your most important responsibility in life is to hear the word. Or, or one could say trust the word. It's really the same because when Jesus talks about hearing the word, he's talking about trusting it. Not just having it go in one ear and out the other, but clinging to it. Cling to the word, my friends, even when there seems no good reason to. Trust in God's promises, even when he appears to have forgotten them. Even though God's ways make no sense to us, we trust the word that his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts higher than our thoughts. And when God's way of governing the world seems questionable to us, and it will at times, we trust that he will make all things right eventually, and we trust that he will make all things work together for the good of those who love him. In Jesus' name, amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.